If you would, turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. I don't know about you, but I've already had enough. I don't know about (laughs) y'all. But we're not done. You know why? Because we need to open the Word of God and we need to study it. When we gather together as the church, we center everything around King Jesus and his word. And so this morning I want to bring to you Genesis chapter 6. And I, I don't want to be a downer, but Genesis chapter 6 is an ugly chapter. And, you know, you, you encounter stories in the Bible that just don't go well on flannel board. You encounter stories in the Bible that are really hard to sit down with kids and discuss. And Genesis chapter 6 begins that way. But I think there are a, key thing, a few key uh, truths that we can take away this morning from Genesis chapter 6 and what follows to help us to understand who we are and why we're in such desperate need of God. Genesis chapter 6, we're going to be looking at the first eight verses in particular as we start this morning. I'm going to ask you as part of our church aerobics to stand. We stand not just to give the legs a workout. We stand because God's word means that much to us. In Genesis chapter 6, look at verses 1 through 8 with me. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord." Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I love you, and I thank you for your word, and I thank you even more for the tough parts of your word. And Father, I ask you to teach us truth this morning because we desperately need it. Father, I pray that you will expose sin clearly today. And Father, that in this room, those who are your people who have trusted in you God, I pray that you'll root sin out of our lives. And God, if we've come in here holding on to sin that we cherish more than you, God, rip it out this morning and cause us to not be ashamed to put it to death. And so, Father, may we do business with sin today, not so that we can earn a relationship with you, but may we do it because Jesus has provided the sacrifice needed to make us holy. And he has eliminated the power of sin over us. And so, God, root out sin today 
and cause us to love Jesus so desperately because of his grace and his mercy. God, you are the judge, but you are also the kind, compassionate father. May you be seen as such this morning. From your word, we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So what do we see from Genesis chapter 6 that helps us this morning? Well, I believe what we see in Genesis chapter 6 is the depths of sin. That this story that God has started in creation has now spun out of control. Remember Genesis 1 and 2, we looked at uh, a couple weeks ago, we looked at the fact that God created everything. He created and he saw that it was good, everything that he had created. Then we looked last week at the fact that even though God had created all things good, including man in his own image, we see that Adam and Eve sin against God. They rebel against him. They desire to be able to decide good and evil for themselves. And as a result, a curse is laid out upon them and upon all creation. And you would think that humanity would see the error of their sin and repent and turn back to God. But by the time we arrive in Genesis 6... Things haven't gotten better. And just so you know, coddling sin and running after sin will not make things better. Makes things much worse. And at the beginning of chapter 6, we see that it has become just that. And so I want to show you this morning, number one, the depths of sin We're told in verse 1 of chapter 6, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took them as their wives, any they chose. So chapter 6 starts out like things are going well. Man began to multiply on the face of the land. That's exactly what God told them to do, was to be fruitful and multiply. And yet there's a problem in their multiplication And we see it in this very strange, debated section of Scripture. We're told that as they began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, I want to point out to you this morning that I believe what we see in Genesis 6, that it is vitally connected to Genesis 3. And the reason is because we see some similar phrasing that should catch our attention. Can I show you this again? Look in verse 1 and 2. That when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, we're told in verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Y'all see some common phrasing from Genesis 3? Let me point something out to you. In Genesis 3 where we see the rebellion of Adam and Eve, we're told that the serpent was conversing with Eve. And by the way, the serpent is displayed to us as a spiritual being interacting with human creation. And Eve is described as what was she commanded by God not to do? To eat of the tree of the knowledge 
of good and evil. And this tree that she was told not to eat, what does, the, what does the serpent begin to draw out in that? Well, he draws out doubt about what God said and draws out the idea that there might be a greater blessing in disobedience to God. And what are we told about Eve with relation to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that she was told not to eat? We're told, number one, she saw it. Number two, she desired it. It looked attractive to her. And number three, she took it. Genesis 6, the sons of God saw the daughters of man. They desired, they were attractive and they took. So in Genesis 6, we actually see a recapitulation of Genesis 3, but there seems to be an inversion that has taken place. Instead of the humans and Eve seeing and reacting and sinning, now we see the sons of God doing the opposite. Now, this leads us to a discussion. Because just so you know, there is massive debate over this verse and what follows. And the debate centers around who in the world are the sons of God. Have you asked about that? Because just so you know, that's a big debate. Because it's interesting that when Moses writes this, he doesn't describe much about them. He just presents them. Can I walk you through very quickly the three major views of the sons of God and allow you to use God's word to land where you desire? Number one, some believe that the sons of God are fallen angels. That the sons of God are fallen angels. And the reason why they would point to the sons of God being fallen angels is because Every other Old Testament use of the sons of God is referring to angels. Every occurrence of sons of God in the Old Testament refer to angels. Not only that, but when you look in the New Testament, Jude and Peter seem to link to that exact same conclusion. So number one, some believe that this is a description of the fallen angels having desired the daughters of men and began to intermarry with them and violate the boundaries that God had set up. You with me so far? Number two, there are some who believe that the sons of God are describing to you powerful Canaanite kings. Powerful kings of the day that descended from Cain and were ruling upon the earth. This is a relatively new idea. It stirred up in the 1960s by a gentleman named Meredith Klein who decided that this is what it appeared to be. That this is referring to uh, kings of the day who were powerful and descended from Cain. 
Meredith Klein, C-L-I-N-E. This was in the 1960s. And then number three. There are some who believe that the sons of God are are referring to the descendants of Seth and the daughters of man referring to the descendants of Cain. Remember, what happened with Cain and Abel? Cain killed his brother Abel, and God provided a, not a replacement, but another son to take Abel's place, kind of a replacement, (laughs) and his name was Seth. And the idea here is that the sons of God are telling you those who were of the line of Cain and the, uh, the sons of God were those who were of the line of Seth and thus were the godly ones, the ones who had come and were perpetuating the godly line and that the daughters of man were actually the line of Cain, those who had been disobedient. And so what they believe is this is referring to intermarriage between the line of Seth and the line of Cain. Or to break it down even simpler, this is intermarriage between unbelievers and believers. And they would tie it to the rest of Genesis and the rest of Moses, the rest of the Pentateuch, where God specifically told believers not to intermarry with unbelievers or those who worshiped pagan gods. And so they would say this is the beginning of that. This is a clear depiction of intermarriage between unbelievers and believers, those of the line of Cain and those of the line of Seth. You with me? Can I, can I be honest with you? I don't know. I'm kind of stuck. I, I, I personally don't believe it's two. I don't believe it's talking about kings of the day that were mighty because I think if Moses wanted to communicate that, he wouldn't use some strange phrase like sons of God. He would just say they were kings of the day that I can see Number one, that this is fallen angels because every other Old Testament use is angels. And so if it's not that here, then it's the only occasion where it's not. But yet, yes, Lynn. But angels can take other forms. They can take on bodies. Remember, even in the New Testament, what are demons found doing? <laughs> Trying to inhabit, right? Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, we see that the angels who Lot is protecting appear to be in some type of other form, that they can be seen, and they want, right? So yes, when we think of spiritual beings, we think they only exist in spiritual form, But the Bible says that there are occasions where angels can take on other forms, including bodies. Yeah, well, and and that's where you have the intermarriage between angels and the daughters of man. You understand? So what they would say is the boundaries God set up between angelic beings and humans has been blurred because they have rebelled against him. And they've taken, uh, when, when, I believe it's Jude, when Jude talks about, he talks about angels who have left their proper place and assumed other forms. So, 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 so,
Yes. Right, that there, there would be the idea that they could take on another form by which they could. Yep, and so... They can enter, they can enter into, right? They enter into pigs. Spiritual beings. Spiritual beings, right? Yeah. No, I don't. <laughs> the simple answer is no, because we'll be here for all day. But what I will say is tonight at five o'clock at Miss Linda's house, we're going to talk more about this at small group. So if you want to come learn more about it, come to the small group tonight at Miss Linda's house, because we will discuss this. But I, this morning, these are all great questions. This is what you should be wrestling with. Because there's a lot of things happening here that don't quite make sense. And to be honest with you, the, the, the things you guys are discussing right now are reasons why you would say, I don't think this is fallen angels. You with me? But I also can see where people say it is because they can take on unnatural forms and they can blur the lines and cross boundaries that God did not intend for them. And we do see other places in the scriptures where, where spirits are able to inhabit and take other forms like bodies or inhabit animals and they can't operate that way. They don't simply stay as immaterial beings. Does that make sense? Not saying that's what happened here. I'm just saying that's the justification as to why they could make those two things mesh up. So I can see that part. But to be honest with you, I can also see number three, which is the idea that these are descendants of the line of Seth and the line of Cain intermarrying and thus also sinning against God because there is the idea of the godly line intermarrying with the ungodly. And you see that because initially what's the, what's the big problem? It's not the sexual activity that's the big problem right off the jump. What's the problem? The intermarriage. They, married, they took wives. Does that make sense? So I think that makes, I, I might actually be leaning, leaning, leaning over that way. But I can see that. So that's why it's such a debate is because there's no clear depiction. But what I want us to see this morning, and we'll talk about that more tonight, but this morning what I want you to get is I want you to see that whether it's fallen angels, marrying and having sexual uh, relationships with women and human beings, or whether it is ungodly people having uh, and marrying and having uh, sexual relations with ungodly people, either one has demonstrated to you that things haven't improved since Genesis 3. In fact, it has grown. And, and the rebellion against God has not only stayed, it seems to have ratcheted up. Because now we see these unnatural things happening that God did not intend. And I want you to notice, God's not going to sit by forever and watch it take place. Verse 3, the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. We'll talk about that later tonight. We're told that the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. And these were the mighty men who were of old and the men of renown. I want you to notice that in these first four verses, sin continues to expand and infiltrate all of creation. And this is a clear violation of the boundaries God has set up. Again, it's just like Genesis 3. God set up boundaries, and guess what humanity does? Rebels against 
God's standard. Why? Because they desired to have the knowledge of good and evil for themselves. They wanted to be able to say, we think it's good to do this, whether God says it or not. Do you see that? That's number one. The second thing we see outside of that is that God is going to intercede. And it starts with a very scary verse in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Did you catch that? What did we just learn about God in relation to sin and his people? There you go. Miss Donna, Miss Donna gets a gold star on her tote board. Yay, Miss Donna. Number one, straight out the jump in verse five, what are we told? The Lord saw. You can't hide anything from him. Oh, <laughs> That's, that's comforting at some times, and other times it's like. But what we're told here, without any qualification, the Lord saw the wickedness of man. You can't hide it, you can't cover it up, you can't pretend it doesn't exist. The Lord sees everything, and it's necessary that He sees everything if He's going to judge rightly. But I want you to notice. He sees, and because he sees the wickedness of men, he's going to do something. But I want to point out to you, notice again, we get a description of sin that is really troubling. Things haven't gotten better, they've gotten worse because the Lord describes the wickedness of men. And how is it described? Number one, we're told that it's great in the earth. That means it's pervasive. It has gone and infiltrated every area of the earth. It is not located, it's not uh, simply pulled away to one location that the sin of man was great in the earth. It was pervasive. We also see that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. So every intention is evil which means that sin is comprehensive. It is all about, it is in everything that we do. Not only that, but he says the every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. Guess what that means? It's invasive. It's all the way to the inner core of us. Everything we do is marred by sin because even the every intention of the thoughts of our hearts are evil, not just our actions, but our hearts themselves. Not only that, he says that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. That means that it is unrivaled. Sin left to itself has no rival to it in our hearts because we desire only sin all the time. And that's what he says next, that the intention and thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So we also learn that sin is constant. So what did God just give us as an understanding of human wickedness? It's pervasive, it's comprehensive, it's invasive, it's unrivaled, and it is constant. Sin is a problem for every human being. Even you sweet old ladies in here. Sin is a problem. Even for you cute little kids, you cute little kids with your pretty cheeks, it's a problem. 
for every human being. And it's not just a problem in our behavior, it's in our thoughts, it's in our motivations, it is pervasive, it is invasive, it is comprehensive, it is completely evil, unrivaled, and it is constant all the time. When God looks on humanity, all he sees is wickedness. Now remember, when God created all things, in Genesis 1 and 2, he creates all things. We're told God saw what he created in chapter 1, verse 31. He says he saw and it was Good. Now in Genesis 6, God sees the wickedness of man and it is nothing but rotten. Things haven't gotten better. It's only gotten worse. And the original hearers of this would be, well, then what are we to do? Because what is deserved? What do people who are marred by sin so completely, what do they deserve? Notice God's response. How does God feel about sin? Is he just like, ah, you know, no big deal. Just try not to do it. Verse 6, we see the Lord's response to sin. How does he feel? And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. Uh, Just so you know, God doesn't literally have a heart. God doesn't literally have a body. These are descriptions of God that are given to us in human terms so that we can actually try to understand what God is saying. It's a big fancy word called anthropomorphism. It means to give God characteristics of a human, even though he has no body, right? But it's just, and it's anthropopathism, which is to ascribe human emotion to God. See, God knows we can't understand him because of our small little finite minds, so he describes himself in ways that we can understand. So he gives him, he talks about body parts, he talks about feelings, he talks about human ideas. And he describes his relation to sin and how he feels about it, that he is sorry or he regrets that he has made human beings. And it grieves him what they do. That means to have sorrow. Because he's describing to you in a way you can understand because you do have sorrow. Right? You know that emotion. So he's describing as closely as he can how he feels about it, even though it doesn't quite hit at all. This is just God's way of speaking to you, Donna, so that you can, because you know what sorrow is. And you know what it means to be cut to your heart and to grieve. He's explaining that to you so that you go, oh, so that's how you feel about it, right? He doesn't literally have the heart. These are the closest words God can give us to describe himself. Does that make sense? But I agree that this doesn't plunge the depths of everything that God feels. This is just the easiest way he can describe it to us. Is that he had sorrow and he regretted making human beings. Now, remember, we are the crown of his creation. And he looked, he created us in his own image. And now he looks and he is sorrowful and he regrets. Hurt is a great way to put it. God is not untouched by sin, it grieves him when the people he created in his image chase after other gods or want to be God instead of him. It hurts him. 
He goes so far in Hosea to describe the relationship between him and his people as a relationship between a husband and a wife, except imagine that your wife is cheating on you all the time. Right? God says, that's how I feel when you sin. Does that make sense? So notice we've gone from God saw and it was good to God saw and it is ugly. Remember, this is because that's what the people wanted. They wanted the knowledge of good and evil. They wanted to be able to define good and evil by their own terms. And look what it gets them. Despair. So what's God going to do? He's not going to sit back and coddle sin. He says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals. And uh oh, notice, not just man. But God's going to blot out animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I'm sorry that I made them. So notice, all of creation is kind of tied together as one group. And because of the wickedness of man, God decides, I'm going to blot it all out. See, that's what our sin deserves. Doesn't that seem severe? Be honest, that sounds really severe, doesn't it? We're going to blot out everything and everyone and every creature. We're going to blot it all out because of wickedness. But what is God teaching with the severity of his judgment? He's teaching us how severe sin is. If God were to say, well, I'm just going to kill a couple of people. I'm just going to wipe out one group of people or just a family. Then all of a sudden we start to view sin as just kind of like a temporary problem. It's not a big deal. When God says he's going to blot out all that he has created, guess what he's showing you? Sin is a massively severe problem. And it only can be dealt with with severe judgment. This is terrible. This is a terrible story of where human beings are apart from God. If left to ourselves, this is all we will know of this life. But, oh, y'all know Y'all need to get your pens out, your little highlighters out. Y'all need to go to verse 8. You need to underline that but. That's sorry, that sounded terrible. Um, underline the whole phrase, but Noah found favor. Underline the whole thing. Underline, <laughs> underline the whole phrase. Because that word is there to tell you what. God has just said something. But he's about to contrast it with something else because he says judgment is coming upon all sin. God's going to blot everything out. He's going to erase all that he has created. And then we're told, but one guy. But Noah found favor with the Lord. Oh, see, this is a terrible story if verse 8 isn't in it. If there is no verse 8, we are all damned to hell, every last one of us. But because of verse 8, guess what? There is a different path that Psalm 1 talks about, a different path other than destruction and death. Because what is God saying? Sin deserves death, but instead, for this one guy and his family, what's he going to receive? Favor that leads to life. What is the word favor? Favor. Oh, it's a great word. It's the word grace. Ooh, some of you are going to get excited about this later. Later on, you're going to be like, man, that's really, really good. 
It means that God looks on Noah and has favor or grace on him, which means he didn't deserve it, but God gave it anyway. Can I help you out? Noah deserved to drown like every other person. Was that a shock to y'all? Noah's not blameless. He's not sinless. We're told that he's righteous and blameless, and that's a biblical way of saying that he followed God, but he was not perfect. Because if Noah was perfect, we don't need Jesus. So the fact that Noah finds favor in verse 8 is not because of what he does. He does what he does because he found favor from God. You catch me? This means God shows up to one family and says, you know what? I'm going to have grace on them and I'm not going to blot them out. If you were Noah and his family, how would you feel about that? You, we, couldn't, we couldn't get you to shut up about it. We couldn't. We couldn't shut you up. If everybody else was going to perish and God says, you know what? I'm just going to have grace on you and your family and I'm going to save you and I'm going to rescue you. Guess what you would do? You would so happy that grace finally showed up because you know you deserve to drown like everyone else. What's God demonstrating? In the midst of the ugliest sin you can possibly see, God is still showing grace towards people. Even though they don't deserve it, he is rescuing them and giving them life that they don't deserve instead of death that they do. I wonder, I wonder what this has to do with the New Testament. I wonder what this has to do with the New Testament. That God shows grace on people who don't deserve it, and instead of giving them death and judgment, instead he gives them life. See, Genesis 6 is showing us the seriousness of sin, our desperate need for the favor of God, his grace to be rescued, and the fact that God can deliver when we trust in his provision. What saved Noah and his family? God gave grace to him and spoke to him and said, here is the way to salvation, and Noah believed him. God said, build a boat where there is no water. And Noah said, okay. The people rose up against Noah and said, you're a fool. He said, that's all right. And when the time came for them to go into the ark, Noah loaded up and did. Look, 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 look. I'm almost done, by the way. This is long. I know it's long. I'm sorry. I'm almost done. Notice, chapter 6, verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Notice he goes on, and we see that Noah continues to do what God asks of him throughout the entire story. He continues to do exactly what God has commanded him to do because he responds and trusts and believes that God is going to be true to his word. And in the end, he is delivered along with his family. And we're told that after the flood was over, the waters resided, receded, sorry, and the dry land was exposed. Oh, it almost sounds like when God was separating water and he was causing dry land to be formed. It, it almost sounds like recreation again. Remember what, happened, what was existing before creation happened? You had 
the deep, the waters, the darkness, and guess what comes afterwards? God forms and shapes, causes dry land to appear. Does the same thing with Noah, doesn't he? The waters, the chaos exists, and then guess what God does? He causes the waters to recede, and dry land is there again, almost like a recreation. And then notice what God says to Noah in chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Does that sound like anything else you know? Who are the first ones to hear, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth? Guess what God's doing? Well, we're told, chapter 9, verse 9, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. What was God doing? He was judging sin and recreating what he meant from the very, very beginning, starting with Noah is the first family again. What started with Adam and failed, God begins again with Noah. They say, well, that's a great story, but here's the problem. Just a few verses from here, Noah sins, which means Noah ain't the savior either. Adam couldn't do it. Noah couldn't do it. What's the rest of the Old Testament about? No one can do it. No one can remain completely faithful to God all the time. It's almost like we need someone who can. Jesus. You got it, brother. <laughs> and that's exactly what the authors of the New Testament want us to see. Because when Noah is described in the New Testament, he's described as obedient, trusting in God. Well, guess what? Noah was casting a shadow that only Jesus could fulfill. Amen. And it's interesting that Peter, when he writes about the times of Noah, he connects them to Jesus. And he says, just like Noah's family was saved through the water, so also we, through baptism, demonstrate the rescue of God. You see, in order to be saved, they had to trust God's provision for rescue which meant in order to be saved, they had to get in the ark. It's interesting, the New Testament talks about the only way we can have salvation is to be in Jesus. So guess what? It's almost as if the ark is a picture of Christ. The only way you can survive the waters of judgment is to be in Jesus, just like Noah and his family were in the ark. You have to trust the provision that God has given. And it's not your own work. It's not your own deeds. It is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how you survive the judgment that is to come. And just like Noah, we are called to either trust him or reject him. If Noah didn't trust God, what would have happened to him? He would have drowned like every other person. But because he trusts in the provision of God, even when everyone else is calling him a fool, his family is spared, and he finds life instead of death. Amen. It's almost like God is preparing us for Jesus to show up. So that when Jesus arrives on the scene, we see here is the ark we've been waiting for. Here is the way of rescue. And if we're in Jesus, we too can be saved. 
See, Genesis 6 isn't just a story about how God dealt with these, fa- these families back in this time. It's not just talking about the rampantness of sin then and how he dealt with it then. Now, the good news is God promises he won't flood the earth like he did here. Praise the Lord Jesus for that. But this truth still remains that sin is still a serious problem, and we cannot solve it on our own. And our sin deserves the judgment of God, and we are part of the problem. It affects us. Every person in this room is a rebel against God. And if left to ourselves, we would experience that judgment of death. But if we trust in the provision of God that he's given for the rescue of our souls in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection from the grave, we, like Noah's family, can be spared. And that's why Peter says that in the days of Noah, Christ was preaching to their generation of how rescue is found. See, through Noah, Jesus was preaching about himself. And preparing everyone for the day that you would need to be in him to have rescue. Oh, what a great story, right? Because it starts with the depths of our sin and it ends with hope. Because the fact that God has favor on any of us, the fact that God has grace on any of us is truly astounding. But if you're a Christian today, you are a recipient of that grace and you are a recipient of eternal life. And you are surrounded every day by people who have no idea that the judgment is coming. Have no idea that sin is serious and it's going to be dealt with by a holy God. We get to go tell them not only is it serious, but there is rescue available from it. And it's Jesus. This morning, I hope you see clearly the depths of our sin and the beautiful grace of God in the rescue of people who don't deserve it. This morning, you need to trust in Jesus. He is the only hope you have for rescue. See your sin, see the ugliness of it, and turn away from it and trust in Christ alone and find peace and rescue and redemption that you so desire and long for. And Christians in the room, how could we ever taste of this wonderful salvation and then run back to sin again? How could we ever see how gracious God has been? Remember, if we had been Noah, we'd be running around telling everybody, man, God's good. He saved me and he rescued me from the depths of my sin. And to go out and share with everyone else, you can be rescued. Today, we are recipients of his grace as Christians. And we got to run out of this place and tell other people that they too can know the salvation of God. They too can know Christ and they need to trust in him. They need to see the seriousness. Oh, as Christians, we need to stop sitting on our hands and acting like it's all just going to happen on its own. We have to get out there and we have to proclaim publicly that God alone is where salvation is found and they need Jesus Christ. Let us be busy doing that because we have been recipients of the life-saving grace of God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the beautiful good news that even though we are marked by sin, you have done everything necessary to rescue us. And Father, I pray that we'll stop trusting in our goodness Stop trusting in our own efforts and instead trust completely and solely in the finished work of your son Jesus on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. He displayed that he is more powerful than sin, death, the Satan. He's more powerful than all of them. And today we can know rescue because of what he's done for us. 
And so, Father, I pray that you will draw people for the first time. Those who are trusting in their own efforts, draw them to yourself. Show them their desperate need for rescue. Show them the seriousness of their sin. And show them the loving, life-saving, gracious work of Jesus Christ. May they turn away from sin and trust in you alone. And, Father, for Christians in the room, help us to see that this life-saving work of Jesus is not a small thing. It is the thing that impacts every part of our existence. Every single second of every minute of every hour of every day is meant to be lived for your glory because you took us from death and brought us to life in Jesus Christ. May that be our boast today. Father, may we give you the praise that only you deserve because of your wonderful work. And Father, in this place, stir up our hearts to hate sin and to love you and to do it in such a way that we are so compelled we have to go tell other people about it. We have to go tell them because we want to see them rescued too. Father, I pray you would use us as instruments in your hands, blank checks ready to be written out however you wish. Use us, God, for your glory and your honor. Oh, Lord, you deserve praise in this place this morning. Help us to respond to you. We ask it in Jesus' name.